the envisioning of the various robot apocalypses, you know, the, the, the worst case scenarios. Those are actually useful um, scenarios that people have thought through in a science fiction way that allow us to then think, well, hmm, maybe we should think about specific kinds of regulations. So in that sense, I, I do think that, that science fiction helps. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Tope Fuller, and I'm the executive director of the Institute for Policy Studies. I am just so pleased to be having a conversation now with John Pfeffer about his wonderful book, Songlands, um, which I read and enjoyed. Um, it's such a great book. It's so timely, and it's so literary, and it's also science fiction. So. I look forward to kind of delving into the various parts of it, but before doing that, I wanted to welcome you, John, and thank you for writing this book. <laughs> I really, I, I too am looking forward to this conversation, and I hope we get to talk about your book as well, and yeah. uh, and what what your plans are in the in the literary future. Um, and uh, this is this is great uh, to, yeah. be, to be in conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I just wanted to start by asking, first of all, congratulations for concluding a trilogy of novels. Did you conceive this as a, a trilogy at the beginning or did it just kind of evolve that way? Well, at the beginning, I didn't even conceive of it as a novel. Um, <laughs> I started out as an essay, you know, and yeah. uh, an editor of mine wanted me to write a piece about the future of U.S.-Russian relations. You know? Okay. I thought, okay. Um, Let's see, what, what would that look like? And I started, you know, going, well, five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out. And then I thought, well, let's look at 20, 2050. Um, that would be an interesting you know, starting point. And as I started thinking about it, I realized that um, to understand U.S.-Russian relations, you really had to understand kind of the trajectory of international relations in general. Sure. Uh, and that the trend, at least in 2015, when I wrote this essay, was towards fragmentation. You know, we were looking at the possible breakup of the European Union. We were seeing various secessionary movements, uh, even within countries in the EU, but obviously in other countries around the world. Um, China, you know, facing its own challenges uh, in Xinjiang. Um, and Russia having less well-known uh, secessionary movements, uh, but there as well. And so I started thinking about this larger question of the fragmentation of, of the international sphere. So I wrote this essay, and it was a, a kind of looking backwards exercise. Uh, and I created a character who would be looking backwards from 2050. And, you know, within the uh, confines of this publication where I, I uh, put out the essay, there was, you know, a good reception. And so the editor was like, hey, why don't you turn this into a book? And oh. I thought, you know, honestly, 
I don't think there's enough there, you know, for a book. You know how you write an essay sometimes and you're like, I put everything in there. There's really nothing else. (laughs) That's all I had. (laughs) (laughs) Then I thought, well, you know, I could turn it into a novel, you know, that would be a kind of radical departure. And and take this main character and basically give him a family so that you would have the breakdown of the international order reflected in the breakdown of his family. And then you could have some really kind of interesting uh, interplay between the two of those. And so that was the first volume, Splinterlands. And, you know, I had a vague idea coming to the end of Splinterlands, you know, gee, maybe it would be kind of nice to do a sequel because this is all from the point of view of this one guy. And sure, there's got to be some other, you know, points of view out there, like his ex-wife. I'm sure his ex-wife has a different picture of what happened to the family and so on. So that was the, the second volume. And then obviously coming to the end of the second volume, I was like, well, they have a kid and, you know, the kid's going to have some yeah. serious input as well. So why not do, you know, you kind of nice triangular structure, mother, father, daughter. Uh, class. <laughs> so, yeah. so I would say that the trilogy just kind of, you know, developed its own momentum. Can't say that I really thought it out in the beginning. Could you provide like a capsule summary of Songlands, this book? And sure. sure. So, you know, uh, as I said, it, it's uh, narrated by Aurora, and Aurora is the daughter of a political scientist and a natural scientist, a glaciologist. And she's kind of been pushed into academia, you know, against her will in many ways, you know? I mean, she comes from this academic family that had high expectations, of course, for her. But what she really wants to be is a poet, you know? And that that is, if she could um, do it all over again, she'd be a poet. And at the beginning of the book, you know, we have basically the the whole metaphor of the series, you know, in miniature. And the metaphor of the series is the breakdown of a family. And here, Aurora is dealing with the breakdown of her own family. And page one, uh, pissed off at her her husband. Um, Her children are off at at, uh, at a a private academy. And, And she's just kind of overcome with her own anger, disappointment in her own life. And that's when the rest of the trilogy comes kind of exploding through the front door uh, of her apartment, because at the end of uh, the second volume, we had her mother, a glaciologist, kind of embarking on this crazy um, episode to to try to re kind of stimulate uh, the growth of ice, of the ice cap in the Arctic. And she is accompanied by an AI by the name of Karin. And another uh, AI as well. Uh, and we don't know at the end of the second volume the, what happened with this experiment. And in the first chapter, uh, Aurora is uh, met at the front door by one of the AIs returning from this episode. And uh, the book essentially traces um, this uh, collaboration between uh, Aurora and this AI or artificial intelligence, Karin, um, to kind of uh, get that project up and running again. Uh, And in so doing, trying to reconstitute the international community, which is fragmented 
as described in the first volume, Splintering. Um, and in addition, um, Aurora uh, has decided that she is going to um, to also kind of re-sing <laughs> uh, the international community into existence again by um, taking these kind of key poetic epics uh, from many different cultures and uh, and breathe new life into them um, as a way of kind of recreating uh, a, a literary, international literary community and an international activist community, all of which converges uh, in an explosive finale. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we, we get a, a, an entirely satisfying conclusion to the truth. Yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Um, as I said, I really enjoyed this book. And one of the things I enjoyed most was the fact that you placed a poet at the center of the proceedings, right? An artist um, is tasked in a way with saving the world. Um, and as a fellow artist, you and I are both artists, that's something that uh, is deeply meaningful to me. And and I, I think part of that derives from my deep belief in the power of art, the power of art to transform hearts and minds and perhaps even societies. I wanted to ask you why you opted to place a poet at the uh, center of this particular book. Yeah, and that's a good question because I personally am not a poet. And so it it is just a, uh, a, a an example of incredible hubris. <laughs> do this. I mean, it really, when I started, of course, you start all these projects with what, you know, uh, Tolstoy called the energy of delusion. Yes, you know, you have all this yes. energy and the energy comes from the fact that you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you, know, you don't have any idea what the future is going to be. If you knew what the future was going to be, you would not embark on the project to begin with. Mm. So if I knew how difficult it would be to actually write Aurora's poems, I would have said, you know, I'm going to make her an engineer or I'm going to make her, you know, the head of foreign policy and focus. <laughs> something I actually know about. Sure. Uh, but no, I, I thought, you know, I wanted it to be poetry because um, I wanted her to feel as if she was on the margins. And, you know, so many folks in the literary community um, feel as if they're on the margins, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you, you write short stories, you know, who publishes short stories? I mean, okay. in the New Yorker, a couple, um, you're lucky if you get a collection together, but you know, short stories, they used to be like the pinnacle of, of, the, of what want people want to read. And now it's really hard to, to find a venue to read them. Yeah. Poetry really hard, you know, to, to, to make a living as a poet. Um, and so I was looking essentially for the equivalent of what was in the first book, which was uh, footnotes. So in Splinterlands, you have two narratives. You have that kind of super text and you have a subtext. And the subtext are these footnotes as this academic is um, uh, sprinkling through the text. And the footnotes tell it another story, to tell the actual story of the disintegration of the family. Um, so I wanted to find something that was kind of comparable to that. And I thought poems would be a, a, a nice um, a way of continuing the story in a different form. Um, but I also I wanted it to be connected in some sense to, you know, the earliest writings that we have. I mean, the earliest writings we have are poems, you know, the oral history, uh, these great epics, you know, coming out of a variety of different cultures at different times. and you know, these, these epics 
We're not just, you know, we're bored and we're sitting around the fire and tell me a story. These epics were intimately connected to the life and the vision uh, and the, 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 the sustainability of, of cultures. And so I wanted to connect to that tradition as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I initially had the full poems, each, each, uh, poem chapter had the full poem in it. And my editor said, what are you crazy? <laughs> you <know? laughs> do not do that. So, you know, going back and forth and it, the compromise is we just have excerpts from the poem. And if anybody is, you know, so moved, they can come go to my website and read the entire poem, but, um, we are sparing the the world, my, my full poetic. <laughs> <laughs> That is so, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I wrote a lot of, I write poems and there was a time in my life when I wrote a lot of poetry. Um, but in my case, I had a really difficult time getting these poems published. So when I published my, my, my debut novel, I smuggled some poems into my book just so I could say I'm a published poet. And so I kind of cheated a little bit. <laughs> um, so the thing, another thing I really liked about your book is that it's, it's this really well-constructed, um, almost lived-in world um, that contains kind of all of these like sci-fi elements, right? Like there's virtual reality, there's augmented reality, there's AI, you know, there's the, these these robots that, you know, um, achieve consciousness in a way. I, I don't think I'm giving anything away when I say that because that happens fairly early on in the book. Um, so I, I'm wondering how much research you had to do in order to construct this world. And I, I suppose the, the, the subtext of this question, if you will, is uh, how big of an, a sci-fi fan are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so let's start with the, the subtext and then I'll go on to the other. Sure. Um, when I was growing up, I was the biggest sci-fi fan. I mean, in part because, you know, it was what my father gifted to me. You know, he had this big collection of those cheap sci-fi, you know, uh, paperbacks from the 1960s and, um, and even some older sci-fi magazines. Um, and, you know, that's all I wanted to do was, was write science fiction. But of course, you know, as soon as I got into writing classes, I think the first one I took in, in college, the professor said uh, a couple of rules. Um, you know, I, I don't want you to, uh, you know, put at the end of a story. I just woke up from a dream. That's <laughs> <You know? laughs> sure. Number two, no science fiction. I was like, what? <laughs> wow. No science fiction. He's like, yeah, it's just it's, you know. It's for the lazy writer, you know. It's like, wow. I don't know if Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, or some of the Gwyn, you know. Uh, I don't know if uh, they would agree with that. But anyway, <laughs> so I kind of moved away from uh, science fiction. Um, but it still kind of resides in me. You know, I still have this this great love of of science fiction. Um, and part of that is, you know, it's this great opportunity to to learn. You know, to learn about the the the, the actual science, um, and so I for for this book, I spent a lot of time reading all of the the texts on AI on artificial intelligence, and um, both the the great fears as well as the techno utopians, um, and I wanted to kind of uh, uh, to to find a, a line between you know, the, the, the greatest fears and the greatest hopes. Um, because, uh, you know, obviously this is a dystopian 
trilogy. I mean, it was about a pretty bleak time uh, in, you know, in 2050. And at the same time, uh, you know, there, there are, as always, uh, hopes of a deus ex machina, of something that's going to come and save humanity. Maybe it's just maybe it's Mars, you know, maybe the entire planet is going to be the place we move to to avoid somehow all the mistakes we made on this planet. Maybe it is the singularity. Maybe it is the, the robot that attains human consciousness and uh, and guides us out of our dead end. Um, maybe it's geoengineering. Um, you know, that saves the planet from, uh, from climate catastrophe. And, you know, I'm no, I'm not a a techno utopian. And in fact, in the first volume, uh, there's a discussion about the, this green swan, which is, you know, the, the, this version of a black swan, a very unpredictable event, but that does occasionally happen. And that basically causes a a tremendous, uh, shift in, uh, in the, patterns of uh of behavior human behavior um and you know the the green swan is dismissed out of hand but in the third volume the discussion is more like look we missed our opportunity in 2020 2021 to do something to do something rational to deal with this climate catastrophe through policy and now the only thing that's left for us is geoengineering it's not because we like geoengineering it's because you know we are forced into this unpleasant choice so all of that uh research was you know a great pleasure to do um and and a lot of it is related to, you know, the foreign policy work that I do on a day-to-day basis. And so obviously the fracturing of, of the planet, the climate crisis, and the impact of technology on, um, on human activity, all three of those, those being the principal kind of themes of the three books, all of those are you know, something I, I write about pretty much all the time. Yeah. Your book is threaded through, it's like threaded with... Um, First of all, the kind of perspectives of a number of great artists and their art, you know, they're represented throughout the book. And also um, a few recurring motifs. One that comes to mind now um, is the Tower of Babel, which is, um, I think, one of the kind of central metaphors or central, I guess, organizing ideas in this book. Um, As you relate it in the text, and as I'm sure many in the audience are aware, it's the kind of story in the Bible about how all of humanity came together at one point um, and they're building this, uh, if if I mess up any aspect of it, first of all, forgive me, dad. And second of all, (laughs) John, correct me. but like a bunch of you know, humans get together and they're building this, uh, this, this structure and they breach the heavens and God gets really sort of scared. He's like, you know, um, the, the humanity is gaining too much power and he, you know, sort of uh, condemns them to speak different languages so they can't communicate and, and in any way sort of, uh, I suppose, um, challenge him. So um, I guess you kind of put this forward as, you know, this idea that we're, we're fragmented, that we're separated as one of the enduring challenges that humanity has faced for a really long time. And perhaps more important than that, one of the major challenges that will prevent us from um, achieving something like, um, you know, kind of a global consensus around how to solve climate change, for example. All of this is a lead up to me asking you, um, 
do you think that there's any hope for us? I mean, we were just talking before we started this about the really high temperatures in the Pacific Northwest, about, you know, Pakistan reaching 126 degrees Celsius, I mean, uh, Celsius Fahrenheit yesterday and how hot it is there. Um, as somebody who spends a lot of his time thinking about foreign policy and thinking about how um, foreign institutions, uh, sort of all these multilateral institutions interact and, and how effective they are or aren't, what, are, what do you think about um, our future? Our near future, if you will. Yes. Yes. Well, let me let me let me uh, let me break that into the two parts and, and talk about the Tower of Babel and then my my vision of the near future. Sure. Um, you know, I I think obviously you know the, the the creators of Esperanto had this this belief that if they created a language that everyone could speak that would be the path to world peace. And so that language was constructed with a very specific reason. But as we know, even if we do all speak the same language, that doesn't guarantee that we're going to be united on anything. You know, the United States at this moment is a perfect example of that. We were so polarized, even though we obviously speak the same language, but at a metaphorical level, we don't speak the same language. We're not on page. Um, so, you know, the Tower of Babel is a fascinating kind of uh, cautionary tale in the Bible, not only about, you know, the importance of um, of not challenging God, <laughs> but uh, but also about um, the the implicit uh, 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 the implicit problem associated with working together across language communities um, that that and you see this in the Bible a lot. I mean, you know, the the uh, the Israelites are not really having a good time with the Amalekites, you know, or the um, uh, or any practically any of the other, you know, tribes around it. And the, the Old Testament is all about consolidation of one tribal identity. And not only to the exclusion of, but frankly, the elimination of of other tribes. Um, and that's not, from my point of view, a particularly good you know uh, story that we want to build on. I mean, uh, I prefer to, and, and this is the perspective of the main character, that she wants to try again. She wants to rebuild the Tower of Babel. Um, and it's not to challenge God. It's really to challenge ourselves. Um, to uh, address the global problems that we all face, uh, because we recognize that there isn't, unfortunately, a God presiding over us who's beneficent, who is going to ensure that the planet survives, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective. So that's the Tower of Babel uh, side of things. And, and you know, her, uh, essentially, her, her retelling of these poems are from lots of different cultures is her very um, concrete effort to bring together a Tower of Babel, a literary version of the Tower of Babel. Mm. In terms of, you know, what the near future looks like, I mean, you know, there are hopeful signs. And just let's just focus on on the, the, the language side of things for a moment. Uh, it's not like Esperanto is, is you know, spreading worldwide and, and peace is breaking out because we can all suddenly communicate with one another. But there are enormous efforts being made to work across language communities, across borders. And the EU is, of course, the European Union is, is a great example of that. Now, 
People who make fun of the EU love to talk about how expensive it is to produce 27 versions of every document in all the languages of the EU, about all the simultaneous translation, all of all of that um, they see as a waste of money because it's also connected with a set of regulations that are, you know, meant to harmonize, you know, relations among all the countries, member states of the EU. Um, but I prefer to see it as this extraordinary experiment that's really still at the beginning, um, an effort to, as they say, maintain diversity within unity. So to maintain both at the same time, um, not to create some kind of gray, homogenous blob, but to preserve not only, and this is this is almost the more radical aspect of it, not only the integrity of national cultures, but cultures within nation states, the what used to be called the community of regions. Um, and this was once seen as a kind of a, a liberating project by the Catalans and the, the um, Bretons and the Corsicans, because they would be able to preserve their identity even more strongly within the EU than they were able to within the nation state. So sure. this is an extraordinary experiment. Um, but it's not unique to, to the EU. I mean, obviously, it's hard to find a country, I mean, outside of, say, South Korea or Japan, where there's just one language. Um, where all countries in the world are basically struggling with the same question of uh, diversity and unity at the same time. Um, and I'd like to say that um, we have seen progress in that regard in, in our uh, the development of kind of intriguing federal uh, projects that uh, either devolve authority to lower levels um, or are able to preserve, um, as in Canada, for instance, with uh, indigenous peoples, um, preserve some really interesting new political structures. So from that point of view, I'm optimistic. In general, however, of course, no. How Who could be optimistic, you know, in, in this day and age? I mean, you know, obviously we have a limited period of time in order to deal with this climate catastrophe. You know, if we have nine years to 2030 um, to be able to really um, turn the corner on carbon emissions, I think we're lucky. I mean, I think that's probably generous, nine years. And I don't see the political momentum at the moment uh, that's going to allow the world to work together. Um, and the main reason primarily at this point, of course, there's divisions between, you know, the global South and the global North and their perspective on, on growth and so on. But honestly, the, the major challenge I see going forward is U.S. and China, that the United States and China are simply not uh, working together. Um, and we, I had uh, harbored some hopes of the Biden administration saying, okay, yeah, we, we disagree with China on a lot of things, but we're definitely going to move together on, on climate questions. And they're rhetorically, they've said that, but in all of the policy um, measures they, they put forward, um, they haven't. But I don't want to go too deeply into, into sure. foreign policy issues. Um, <laughs> so from a, from a literary point of view, of course, um, you know, it's a uh, I do see that uh, increasingly, uh, and this is represented in the, the incredible growth of literature on climate questions, yeah. where people are becoming engaged on this. It's become the kind of, it's, you have to address this, you know, it's, yeah. it, you know, it's like, um, 
you know, <laughs> you know, people say, hey, you know, Marco Polo obviously didn't go to China because he didn't talk about tea. Well, you didn't have to talk about tea if you were in China. I mean, there, it wasn't yeah. like absolutely indispensable. You had to talk about tea and whatever you wrote sure. about. China. But increasingly, I think, you know, as people look back on our era, anybody who doesn't write in some sense about climate, it's like, where were they? What were they doing? Yeah. What were they yeah. thinking about? You know, yeah. it, even if it's just, you know, a, a couple of comments here and a there. Glancing like, reference. Yeah, it is. It is the atmosphere. It is. <laughs> it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the pressing concern of our moment, you know, um, so I just want to take a little bit of a step back because I think about your career. You are a foreign policy sort of scholar. You're an analyst. Um, you also write plays. You write novels as well. Um, so uh, two questions on this. First of all, how does the art fit into the other stuff that you do, the kind of analysis and scholarly stuff that you do on a daily basis? So I'm going to warn you. I'm going to turn this question back on to you. So, but before you're thinking about, because <laughs> um, you just took over, you know, as as new executive director at, at Institute for Policy Studies. So, yeah. I'm sure, this question is, you know, on your mind as well. Um, you know, I I've always um, tried to kind of combine. The, the different parts of my life in what I hope are creative ways. Um, and, uh, and I've done that because, well, of course, obviously, again, in writing class, they always say, write about what you know. Yeah. And, you know, so on the one hand, yes, I, I'm going to write in some sense about what I, what I know. On the other hand, I'm perverse, so I'm going to write about things I know nothing about, <laughs> like poetry. Um, <laughs> there's a creative tension between the two. Sure. Um, but if if I'm I, I'm always kind of starting in a place that I know before reaching out to places that I don't know. Um, but uh, I also think you know when I when I'm on when I have my foreign policy cap on, I'm always thinking, well, you know. We have to think about ways of making foreign policy interesting for folks because, you know, I can just tell you within my own family. OK, so, I, you know, I published my first book was on Soviet foreign policy. Boy, was that a big hit within my family. We <laughs> oh, couldn't wait to finish that book. I mean, because <laughs> it was on foreign policy, you know, it's like that that exciting, you know. Uh, so how do we make foreign policy interesting? How do we make it so that people want to go? pick up a book and learn about what's going on in other parts of the world. I mean, cause it's essential. Um, you know, my second, my, uh, my first novel was about train accidents. Now, of course, train accidents, people want to know about train accidents cause it's like, yeah. it's a thriller. It's about, you know, trains going off the rails and it's about crazy crashes and conspiracies. And yeah, so people want, and my family got excited about that. They wanted to, <laughs> but in that book too, I wanted to address, you know, questions about, for instance, infrastructure in the United States, about the fact that, you know, trains were going off the rails because our infrastructure was completely, uh, you know, outdated and falling into disrepair. Um, so, you know, it's not like I have a, an essay in there about the need for an infrastructure bill. No, I mean, was, <laughs> but there was, you know, content in there that I hoped, you know, people would find interesting, but also um, informative about the state yep. of American infrastructure. So always, and, you know, when I, my editor at the time, uh, you know, she picked up the book and she said, 
um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking this book because it's about something I don't know anything about. And I think, you know, that's, that's what often, um, you know, uh, publishers are looking for. They're looking for something that's new, something that provides information about, you know, a, a realm that many readers don't know much about, um, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the details of Da Vinci's Last Supper or, uh, or you know, uh, Soviet submarines or whatever. I mean, whatever the topic, you know, the, these books provide a great deal of detail about their, their subject matter. Um, and, and so there I realized again that, you know, you, you have this opportunity to combine as much as possible in a kind of almost in this convergence of, of interests, uh, of, you know, the, the, the social science, if you will, and the literary. Um, so I've always tried to kind of, um, uh, exploit the creative tensions between the two. Um, but what about you? What, what, how, how do you kind of handle this, this challenge in, in your writing and in your professional life? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, probably around the time that I first arrived at IPS, which was back in 2010, I was fortunate enough to be a Newman Fellow, which is when I first met you, among other people at IPS. I think I decided at that point that I was going to be a fully integrated person. You know, up to that point, I thought to myself that I had, you know, I, I was writing fiction and poetry, but I, I was kind of doing that just at night. I had essentially decided that nobody in my sort of professional life needed to know about this. And so I was living um, a kind of dual existence that felt deeply uncomfortable for me. And I thought back to my time in grad school as well, uh, when I'd spent a great deal of time thinking about leaders who were also sort of artists. You know, I remember I read a bunch of books by Leopold Senghor when I was at at Oxford and M.A. Cesar and the uh, president of the Czech Republic and Czechoslovakia, the great playwright, uh, Havel as well. Um, And I was intrigued. I didn't know what the kind of compulsion was for me, like to kind of seek out these these writers and their works. But as, as I grew older, it came to me that I was interested in learning about people who were, um, cause I, I also care deeply about sort of, you know, um, social justice. And, um, when I, I did uh, two graduate degrees, one in comparative social policy, one in African studies. So I'm also interested in, in sort of policy in general as well. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to find a way to merge my interests in human beings and human imagination, um, and also policy. And there weren't many places in the world where, those two things seem to be interacting in a really robust way. And IPS happened to be one of those places. And I was fortunate enough to land there, um, to land here in a way, to land at IPS. So um, I think being at IPS was a crucial part of that. Um, But I think too, uh, my parents are immigrants from Nigeria. And the reason why my father and mother gave up so much, you know, my dad, my, his, he was living in, you know, unlike most immigrant immigration stories, my dad was living in relative comfort in Nigeria. He came across the ocean literally because of a dream, like literally because of this idea that when he arrived in America, he'd be able to kind of achieve all kinds of things that perhaps weren't possible in Nigeria. Um, and so this idea too, that as human beings, imagination plays a great role in the way that we think about life, the way that we think about each other, and more important than anything else, the way we think about the future. Um, as a progressive person, 
I'm constantly employing my imagination as I try to fashion a future that has space for all of us, right? That's an act of imagination. Um, and so I think it helps me a great deal if I'm sharpening my imagination by reading as many novels as I can and writing novels as well by writing poetry. Um, so for me, these two things now are inextricable. Um, and, you know, the, it, I am thinking constantly about sort of art and novels at the same time I'm thinking about policy formation and the kinds of policies that will benefit the most people. So uh, I think that's my kind of approach to things. Well, you know, in your in your novel, a particular kind of black man, which is a fabulous novel, and unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> I'll be here in the room, but I don't want to. <laughs> um, you know, you you talk about uh, the immigrant experience, and you know, and and there's fabulous kind of uh, depictions of the challenges of the of the main character, as well as the main character's father and uh, mother and stepmother face. Um, as you were writing that, did you did you consciously think, well, you know, I have my own story to tell as well as I have other stories of immigrant experience, but I have there's something I want to get at here about immigrant experience. Did you have that in your mind or you, were you just like, nah, I got a great story to tell and I want to tell this story? Uh, you know, it's funny. I think I related to what you said about writing your book in terms of like having, you know, a story. The, the thing I think that um is most important if you want to write a novel is that you have to have a story. <laughs> um, and this is for me separate from the question of plot. I, I don't necessarily need a plot, but there needs to be like some kind of um, journey that happens. I think um, some people might disagree with me and I, and I read lots of plotless novels and love them, but I, I do think that that's that some sense of that is important. Um, and so, but at the same time, I wanted to write a story about identity construction because it's something that for me is incredibly important, especially in this century. The thing that differentiates this, one of the many things that differentiates this century from last century is that human beings now have the option of saying, this is who I am, right? To construct their own identities. In the past, what happened more or less was that you were born, somebody handed you an identity card, you know, and said, you know, these are your people, this is who you emerge from, this is who you're gonna be in life. Um, and, and you more or less had to kind of um, adhere or, or, or sort of go along with that script. Whereas now, um, we all have op part of this is facilitated by the web and connecting with people who might feel the same way about who they are as you do. Part of this, too, is this wonderful thing that's happening around LBG LGBTQIA communities as well and people kind of boldly stepping into who they are. Um, and so I wanted to write a book about somebody who is placed in a really difficult circumstance and that his parents are from Nigeria. He's born and raised in America. There are certainly autobiographical elements here um, and has to kind of come up with a sense of who he is. And sure, he can be assisted in certain ways by his parents, assisted in certain ways by his by the society that he lives in. But ultimately, it's up to him to kind of construct an identity. Um, and I think for me, from my perspective, this is a really sort of big question this century. Like, first of all, who are we going to choose to be? Second of all, um, how do we build enduring connections, considering the fact that we all have the option of kind of coming up with um, our own sense of self that is disconnected um, from the way that people once thought of identity in the past? Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, you're right. I mean, we... I've been watching Steisel, which, you know, this TV yeah. from Israel about ultra-Orthodox Jews. And the community is so small. And also your identity is basically 
given to you when you're born. You know, yeah. you'll be if you're a man, you're going to be a, a scholar of the Torah. If you're a yep. woman, you'll be married to a scholar. There's <laughs> a lot of wiggle room, and the, yeah. this basically is about trying to find wiggle room or not within yeah. structure. But it is a it, it, the 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 number of choices. Uh, available are so limited in comparison to say someone who grows up, I don't know, in suburban America, you suddenly yeah. practically anything, including sure. resident, they tell us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, we've had a number of really great questions come in. So I think I, I will ask you a couple of them now and we'll see where, the, where this conversation goes. Um, so here's one question. To what extent can science fiction impact or improve the developments in science and technology in human life? Is it right to say that science fiction can change what human life looks like in the future? Yeah, that's a good question. And you know, it's a, it's a question I'm, I, I'm particularly interested in because of, of the discussions around AI right now. And um, I'll give you an example. You know, uh, Isaac Asimov, wrote, you know, his, his well-known iRobot series of short stories. And in them, he formulated his three rules or three laws of robots, um, which basically, you know, a, a robot uh, can't, has to, has to follow the orders of humans, can't uh, harm humans, and has to uh, preserve itself unless it uh, violates. That's the first thing. Second, yeah. Um, and that, that, those are really interesting. They're interesting laws because it, Asimov was able to kind of explore moral questions that we face as humans, but in a different context. Um, and of course, at the time, you know, the, the, we, the robots, what robots did we have at the time? And we <laughs> had nothing, you know? Yeah. Had, you know, computers were the size of, you know, skyscrapers, you know? Sure. Um, and so it was very visionary in terms of, of even thinking about putting any kind of restrictions on technology. Now, of course, we have robots, and uh, and those rules are helpful, but they are not uh, they are not sufficient um, in in thinking about AI today. And and this guy Frank Pasquale, who's a, a lawyer, a legal scholar. Uh, at Brooklyn College, I think, has published a new book of the four rules of the four laws of robotics. And uh, and they're more detailed and, and they really apply to the robots we have, not the robots we might have in the future. But I do think that the science fiction about robots has helped us think about um, uh, the direction we need to go with AI and the directions we need we can't go. I mean, the envisioning of the various robot apocalypses, you know, the, the, the worst case scenarios of, of robots taking over, of robots manipulating us, of robots replicating themselves, you know, they colonize the entire universe. I mean, those yeah. are actually useful um, scenarios that people have thought through in a science fiction way that allow us to then think, well, hmm, maybe we should think about specific kinds of regulations, like, for instance, the fact that uh, no robot should have the ability to replicate itself. Um, because yeah. Problematic. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I, I do think that, that science fiction helps. Now, that's on the technology side. But if we're looking at like... Um, uh, on the social side, I mean, look at Octavia Butler's, you know, parable of the sower, parable of the talents. I mean, she helped us think through the Trump age, what, 20 years before Trump came to power? Yeah. Um, 
you know, of course, it would have been better if that had been required reading for every human being you know, in the United States. Um, and obviously yeah. it wasn't. But uh, still in all, I think it, it did help us think through that apocalypse yeah. scenario in ways that, you know, politically are helpful. Um, Absolutely. That's a great response. Um, here's another question. How do you see the future of dystopian fiction changing as we run headfirst into an actual apocalypse with a climate catastrophe? Is there more or less of a place for it? Yeah, well, you know, it used to be that dystopian fiction was, you know, really on the outskirts you know, of, yeah. of fiction. Um, and it gradually came closer and closer and closer. I mean, so, uh, you know, Zamyatin's We, for instance, uh, became, um, you know, a, a much, much more relevant text as, as politics developed <laughs> inside Russia and then the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, 1984, which might otherwise have been just, you know, uh, a disconnected vision of, of a future became, again, far more relevant in the post-World War II era. Um, and so dystopian fictions are coming closer and closer. And one could, I mean, if one wanted to extrapolate, of course, it would say that dystopian fiction would completely displace all other fiction, you know, as, yeah. as our reality becomes dystopian, then realistic fiction, which describes our reality, is necessarily dystopian. Uh, let's hope that that doesn't happen. Like you know? a robot that replicates itself, right? Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, the... The, this was, of course, a, a big question that uh, dystopian novelists were addressing in 2016. You know, Trump comes to power, yeah. um, and we and, and dystopian fiction becomes suddenly on on the bestseller list again. And, and old stuff as well as new stuff coming out, and there was a, a hunger for dystopian fiction. I think not because you know people wanted to revel in you know in the worst case scenarios but i think people yeah. were looking for um guidance you know from from thinkers who had grappled with these issues in a theoretical sense but now we have to grapple with it in a very realistic sense so from that point of view you're always going to have visionary thinkers who are looking further into the future and you know the it could be the unintended consequences of what are considered right now to be virtuous actions or virtuous policies. Uh, yeah. Elizabeth Colbert has a great new book out on kind of the unintended consequences of various technological fixes um, from introducing, you know, invasive species to control uh, other invasive species to, sure. you know, uh, engineering projects, um, rivers and lakes. Um, so there's always going to be a dystopian strain that is looking at, you know, even further beyond the horizon at, uh, at, at other scenarios. So I think that's, again, another creative tension between the description of our dystopian present and our speculation about uh, future dystopias. Indeed. Indeed. Well said. Uh, here's another question. Speaking of Ray Bradbury, he thought that science fiction was the most important literature in the history of the world because it's the history of ideas and the history of our civilization birthing itself in response to the sort of disasters depicted in books like Songlands. Do you share his view? Wow. Well, uh, hmm. of course, that was a self-serving answer on the part of Ray Bradbury. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> it's the most important fiction. Uh, 
I, I don't know if I would say that necessarily, but uh, <laughs> the genre that I'm working is the most important genre. Um, there is there is much to be said about the fact that science fiction is a is a genre of ideas and an and a, a genre of ideas that's palatable, um, you know, so that. Uh, there are plenty of novels of ideas, of course, but they don't necessarily get the kind of um, distribution or uh, pickup as as some of the more popular science fiction stories do. Um, and there, they are novels of ideas in ways that other genres really often are not novels of ideas. I mean, it's hard to think of a, a thriller necessarily as a novel of ideas, uh, although sometimes there, there are ideas in them. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I mean, narrowly speaking, science fiction does have that virtue, although there's lots of crud as well. I, you know, I'm always reminded, uh, I think it was Theodore, uh, uh, I forget, it wasn't Heinlein, Sturgeon, Theodore Sturgeon, the great science fiction writer, you know, who said, you know, someone told, asked him, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that you write science fiction, but 90% of science fiction is crap. And he said, <laughs> Well, 90% of everything is crap. <laughs> I'm mindful <laughs> of that. Um, but I do think that uh, that things that are that were considered science fiction have, you know, become part of, um, of of as I said, the everyday experience of people. So it's no longer, you know, uh, beyond the realm of, of realism. Um, and so it prepares us in some ways for addressing those questions. Um, whether it's the most important place to have those discussions, well, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I do think that, uh, you know, there, there are questions. I mean, you know, like uh, James Blish wrote uh, several books in, in which he was looking at kind of the questions of, of uh, spirituality, you know, like uh, you know, there was one, a question of conscience, I think it was called about a, a priest who's like on another planet who has a crisis of faith because he's like discovered that, well, God may not exist or does exist in a form he did not anticipate. Um, and I mean, that's clearly a, a question that, that, that is addressed in, 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 realist fiction. Um, uh, but it's addressed in a way that I think startles the reader, you know, and, and you know, the, the way that um, the Russians always talked about the, the uh, making strange um, that they, the formalists, the Russian formalists argued that the most important aspect of fiction and a, of a writer is to make things strange. Um, the familiar, uh, the everyday, the ordinary, your job as a writer is to make it strange. Priyom astranyenye, as they said in Russian. Um, and I've always taken that to heart. And science yeah. fiction, you could say, is the preeminent genre of making things strange. So from mm-hmm. that point of view, they are at the acme of the formalist pyramid of, of literature production. Yeah, yeah, indeed. We have a couple more questions. So I, I, I'll see if we can get through them before uh, we're finished here. Um, another question. Some back and forth happening about the role of art, science fiction, etc. Ursula K. Le Guin said that science fiction is not prescriptive. It is descriptive. What is your position on this statement? Yeah, well, you know, she was very clear about that with the lathe of heaven. <laughs> you know, beware any, any prescriptions. Um, 
And uh, and to a certain extent, I agree with that. But I do think that, uh, and maybe I'm old fashioned in this respect, but I do think there is moral purpose to yeah. what we write um, and that we have uh, a certain obligation um, to at least think through these issues. Um, that isn't to say that we say you have to do A, B, and C. Sure. But, it, but it might be saying, well, if you do A, this might happen. If you do B, this might happen. If you do C, this might happen. And boy, if you do D, that's really going to be a big mistake. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so that, that, sure. As far as we get in terms of, of prescription. Um, you know, like, for instance, in, in Songlands, I talk about geoengineering, and there is a spirited debate over geoengineering, with a lot of folks on the left in particular saying this is a major mistake. You know, it, it's it's going to be, uh, it, it's going to have incredible unintended consequences if we, you know, seed the clouds or grow ice or whatever, you know, kind of crazy scientific intervention into into the uh, atmosphere that we come up with in order to to end uh, or to at least mitigate um, global warming. Uh, and I would agree with that. Um, I, I am also very um, skeptical about virtually every geoengineering plan that's out there. At the yeah. same and, uh, and so I'm not going to say, you know, uh, we got to do this, we got to do this. But I, I will say, you know, we have to be careful to um, to consider that as, you know, what we might have to do in the future if we don't, you know, pursue the the more rational policies today to address climate change. The geoengineering. Yeah might be the only thing that's left for us. And that's uh, that's not a prescription. That's a warning. And, you know, I suppose there's a, a difference between uh, warning and prescription. Warning isn't yeah. necessarily description either, but, but it is uh, it is a different role, I think, for the writer. Yeah. Um, OK, another question. Let's see. Um, are there any contemporary science fiction authors who are particularly influential on either of your own work? You go first, <laughs> if, you, if you want to. <laughs> um, it's such it's a good question because I read a lot of sci-fi when I was um, growing up. I mean, all the aforementioned folks, Bradbury, Asimov, these were giants in my in my life. Um, I haven't read as much recently, and it's one of the things that I'm not so happy about. Um, I read a lot of contemporary fiction, but um, a lot of and I and I hate the distinctions, you know, genre, literary fiction, whatever. But I, I do tend to read a lot of literary fiction just because I'm writing in that genre, if you will, at the moment. And also um, I teach as well and I teach in that genre. So whenever I have time, I, I tend to spend time um, working and, and thinking in that field. But that said, I do watch more than my fair share of science fiction television programs, you know, so um if there's a sci-fi show that's on TV, I will watch it. And, uh, you know, it's just my wife kind of knows this already. And with no argument, you know, she'll kind of watch along with me. So I've seen shows, a lot of shows recently that have impacted me, I think, in all kinds of ways. Um, I've seen there's a show that was on Netflix called Altered Carbon that I thought was pretty good. It's about I don't know if you've seen it, John. It's about um, kind of this future where your consciousness uh, can be housed in a kind of, I don't know, some kind of. Uh, data packet card or something and 
Um, and so people, are, especially wealthy people, are effectively immortal, right? They can live forever and ever if they can find, you know, plug into the right body and uh, and continue living in a way. So um, similar ideas actually are present in your book. This idea that I mean, your your book is more about the cloud and the importance of the cloud, but this one is, I, I suppose, similar in that. Um, life can live beyond uh, the body in a way. So I uh, really like that book. There was a book, uh, I'm sorry, there was a show on Hulu last year called Devs, which I thought was fantastic. Um, it was about like a quantum computer that had this ability to kind of uh, sort of recreate the past in a way and recreate and envision a kind of future. Um, and the sort of terrible power that the people who had this, who created this computer had. And of course, as you can imagine, because it's a show, uh, somebody tries to use that power in, in the wrong way. Um, and I grew up watching Star Trek, uh, in particular Star Trek, the next generation, um, and still watch Star Trek today. So I've seen like every iteration of Star Trek probably, um, wanted desperately to go to Starfleet Academy. I was the, you know, I guess it says a lot about who I was as a kid, but I, I was praying that there would, that Starfleet Academy would be established by the time I was 18. So I could apply and go, unfortunately that didn't happen. Um, and, you know, I've not said this in, in many places, but I think you know, I was fortunate enough to go to Oxford for grad school. And I think one of the reasons I went was because it was my version of Starfleet Academy. Like it's a place where there are a bunch of people from around the world who are in the same place and learning from each other and, and are being tested academically and socially. Um, so sci-fi has had a profound impact on my life, on my trajectory as a, as a writer, as a sort of person in the world. Um, but to kind of more succinctly respond to that question. Um, I do, I need to read more sci-fi now, and especially because I, I recognize that um, contemporary sci-fi writers are doing all kinds of amazing things that I, I would like to sort of uh, learn more about. How about you? Well, you know, thank you, first of all, because you gave me a chance to look up the name and the title of the book I wanted to talk about. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Don't I? Uh, I I'm happy to help. <laughs> Um, but there's this book that I read called The City and the City by China Mieville. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't know if you've read that, but, uh, you know, it's, I've it's not a, read it, but I, yeah, I've heard about it. It's a smash up of, of two genres, like a police procedural and science fiction in which uh, you have two cities that exist like two, like a checkerboard on top of each other. And uh, it's, it's actually relatively difficult to go between the two cities, even though they exist you know, on top of each other. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a mind blowing, mind twisting novel, which is incredibly well constructed, but it's also incredibly resonant in terms of, uh, you know, I was traveling in Eastern Europe at the time and it's so true how you have these two cities on top of each other and they do not communicate. You had, you know, a Roma, or uh, otherwise known as gypsies in this country, uh, Roma and non-Roma, uh, living in the same place with no contact whatsoever, with only one or two people going between the two communities, social workers, teachers, what have you. Sure. So actually what was science fiction? I mean, you could read it completely as science fiction, or you could read it as complete description of, of reality as lived. And that's the same, you know, here in Washington between, you know, African-American population and white American population. Uh, you know, often there is no contact between the two. And it's yeah. as if the two cities are coexisting, um, but with so little interaction. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, that kind of novel, a novel that can be out there, so out there, you know, in terms of its uh, reconfiguring of reality. And you get so absorbed in this, you know, this magical realism. And then it hits you like halfway through, three quarters through. Wait a second. That's actually that is the life I'm in right now. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a profound kind of book. Yeah. What's the name again for folks who might want to? The City and the City. The City and the City. I will add that to my summer reading list. Um, uh, Another question. Any good recommendations for books that deal with utopian rather than dystopian futures? Hmm. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, utopia is not a popular topic. I know. (laughs) It's pretty good good drama from utopian visions, right? Like, you usually see utopian gone bad, right? I can think of a few examples of that. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it, fiction is all, always about conflict. And, you know, there isn't much conflict in utopia. Um, yeah. I mean, you could you could look at, you know, looking backwards, you know, was, uh, and, and obviously Tom uh, Moore's utopia. And so, you know, the earliest versions when people had, I think, more hope for what the future might be, Um there was, you know, a, an expectation, you know, for looking backwards that there would be a kind of, you know, progression towards this social democratic, uh, emancipatory future, um, where the the uh, division between rich and poor would disappear, the divisions between, um, you know, of the patriarchy would would disappear. You know, all the divisions of 19th century industrial civilization would be rubbed away. And, you know, you go up far enough into the future, you don't have to deal with the messy, you know, parts of how it got from A to B. You can just kind of describe what B is. And that really fell out of favor, I think, in the 20th century. The the notion of progressive, um, a, a progressive uh, lineage or trajectory yeah. toward, uh, and, and a description then of uh, of a utopia um, it's, yeah, it really is a, a, a comment on the times we live in. Um, it would be interesting, for instance, if IPS put out, you know, a series of pamphlets on, you know, various utopian visions in, in a narrative. That would be interesting. Yeah, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, and it would be like, uh, let's imagine what, uh, a future would look like without cars. Let's imagine what a a, a fully uh, equal uh, male female uh, relationship or gender relations more generally. What kind of society, what would society actually look like? Um, yeah. What if we kept all the fossil fuels in the ground, all the minerals? Um, so you know, we actually write some intriguing you know stories based on those utopian assumptions. Um, there could be some conflict. I mean, there's always going to be conflict, but there would be, it would, it would provide, um, you know, some kind of snapshot visions of, of, uh, of the kind of worlds we are every day here at IPS trying to create. Yeah. I guess our national priorities project kind of does that in terms of thinking about what kind of society we might have if we spent money on sort of 
instead of spending money on our various military misadventures, we spent money on social programs, say, here. But I think I'm intrigued by what you're saying because it really is kind of solidly stepping into this kind of idea of what a utopian future could look like, the kind of future that many of us um, desperately want to inhabit. Um, Yeah, to your point, I think uh, utopia is just difficult to kind of to to write about or to to dramatize in a way like um the, the funny thing about and i'll just return for just a moment to star trek the next generation but the interesting thing about the creation of that is gene roddenberry insisted that his show would be a utopian vision of the world and that presented the writers with all kinds of problems as they started to try to sketch out episodes and create you know sort of season-long arcs or whatever whatever they were working on because We've all been trained in this idea that sort of conflict is an intrinsic part of of, of drama, of fiction, of of creating a world in a way. Um, and so they would ask him, and, and he, he had these rules, like, you know, the staff can't be in conflict with one another, or if they are, they have to resolve it relatively quickly. And so they brought in external kind of, you know, sort of threats that they would have to contend with. But the Federation, the United Federation of Planets, Starfleet, I mean, things were more or less okay. If anything, you know, sort of future iterations of Star Trek have contravened this rule constantly, and there's all kind of drama that's happening within them. But I think that just goes to demonstrate how difficult it, it is. But as an aside, um, one thing that I, I think about as somebody who also teaches creative writing is this idea that that conflict has to be a necessary component of of creating fiction. One could even say that that is a moral stance. That, you know, that the kind of what are the moral implications of 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 constructing fiction in that way. Now, of course, the counter the the counter is, is there any other way to do it that's compelling? And <laughs> that's the difficult part. But it's something that I have spent um, a lot of time thinking about. So uh, I was just to say that I'm not quite sure. I don't have a, an example of a great utopian <laughs> sci-fi novel, but perhaps one will come to me as I as we as we continue this conversation. Um I wanted to ask you another question that um that I was thinking about as, as I read the book, and it, and we've talked about this already, but your protagonist is a woman. Um, first, how was it for you writing from the perspective of a woman? Did that present any challenges, or, or did you do any research? What what that did that process look like for you? Yeah, um, well, I didn't think of it as writing from a woman's perspective per se, um, because what I really was thinking about was uh, what her what her kind of primary emotion was. And, you know, I think for me, uh, that's critical in kind of developing a character. I mean, what did, what's the primary emotion? I mean, it's not like it's the only emotion the person's going to have, but what is the primary emotion um, that's going to carry this, this character through its arc? Um, and so that for me was, I mean, it's, it was caught up, of course, in, in a variety of, of things, you know, her age, uh, her gender, where she lives, race, et cetera. So there are all sorts of um, attributes that are important to consider. But from my perspective, I really started with she was angry and disappointed. Um, And that was going to drive her through this narrative. But also it was going to take her to a certain point of realization and then to some kind of resting place, shall we say, in terms of emotional development. you know, in my first novel, which was about train accidents, it, it had alternating chapters. It was, you know, a, a guy uh, who was a train fanatic and then a woman who was an FBI agent. And that was my first experience kind of doing, you know, uh, a, a different uh, 
approaches. And I found it really kind of liberating, you know, to, to write about, well, in both cases, people I don't know. I'm not a trained fan. I don't really care that much about trades and I'm not a woman. Um, but when people, you know, ask me about the book, that's what they focused on. They weren't like, well, are, you know, uh, I can't believe that you as a train fan wrote about a train fan. No one ever said that. I mean, uh, sure. although it would have been perhaps a legitimate question, <laughs> but many people were like, well, you know, how could you write, you know, from the woman's perspective? Well, you know, this, of course, is a vexed question these days. You know, the degree yep. to which, you know, writers can inhabit everybody's shoes <laughs> or anybody else's shoes. Um, and, you know, again, going back to the, the to, you know, writing, creative writing 101, you're supposed to, you know, develop empathy. You're supposed to be able to put yourself in other people's shoes. You're supposed to see the world through other people's eyes, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's the, that's the imaginative exercise. Um, and then, you know, eventually you find out that it's actually very difficult even to write from your own perspective. That, in some cases, is the hardest thing to do. It's much easier to write about other people. But you yourself, how much access do you have to your own reality and the conflicting, you know, uh, perspectives you have and the stuff that you don't want to talk about, the stuff you're ashamed of? I mean, all of that is challenging, you know. And just to give one final anecdote. Hi there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm working right now. I'll come Uh, see you soon. When I was doing um, stage, you know, when I was first starting out on stage, my director, you know, would go through because I in the first show I did with him, he, I, I was going between myself as a as a uh, character and other people, and I had no problem doing the other characters. I mean, that was because you kind of figure out what what their perspective is and their tics, and and you and you kind of get them right. But he was constantly telling me, you know, you're just not doing well. And playing yourself. I was like, but I am myself. He's like, no, you're not yourself. When you're on stage, you're a different person and you have to play a different person. And in some sense, it's the same with fiction. If you're writing about yourself, you're not really writing about yourself. You're writing about some other character that you've created, even if it's I, even if it has, even if every aspect that you put on the paper on paper is you. It's still not you. So that's the real, that's the paradox, I think, of, of, of writing. I don't know if you've encountered that too. I mean, obviously. I wish we could have gone on the road together when I was on the book tour for my novel. Because <laughs> you said this incredibly clearly and you've captured an idea that I think a lot of people don't, for, for obvious reasons, and I'm not sort of maligning anyone who doesn't get this because maybe it's not intuitive, but Um, Yeah, it is. The moment you try to fix yourself on the page, what you'll discover is that the person that the entity you're writing about, the person you're writing about has its own ambitions, ideas, you know, like with, for example, with my novel, I started I wasn't quite sure what I was writing when I began writing. I thought perhaps I was writing a memoir. As it happens, I started writing it at, at IPS, you know, and I thought like, you know, now's the time to write a memoir, which is a very precocious, precocious and pretentious thing to do in your sort of mid to late 20s. Um, but there you go. <laughs> I thought, look, you know, I, I've, I've had interesting experiences. Let me write about them. And the thing that I discovered is, is that I, as I started to write, you know, it started in a very autobiographical place. But then and I used to watch all these YouTube videos where writers talk about like their process and, you know, like the, you know, how, how they create and that sort of thing. And they would all almost to a person say, 
that their characters have their own lives. And I thought this was a bunch of mumbo jumbo. I thought like this is some like spiritual nonsense that is not helping me as an aspiring writer, an aspiring novelist, like sort of figure out how to do this. But they were all right. Like I, what I discovered as, as I was writing was that Tunde, the character that my, my protagonist, um, was his own person. And the moment that I tried to, you know, write about, um, you know, try to write my life into the book in a way like it just didn't fit anymore. I remember having this really great back and forth with my editor about a portion of my book that was explicitly autobiographical in the middle of my book. And he said, this doesn't sing the way the rest of your book does. And it's funny because like what had happened was that my character had grown in, in a different direction than I had. Right. And so for that reason, had his own ambitions, had his own way of being in the world that didn't necessarily rhyme with my way of being in the world. So I think that you've identified and, you know, um, as somebody who reads more than my fair share of, of what a, a kind of emerging genre that's not really emerging at all, that's called autofiction, which is writers writing about themselves in one way or another. Um, I think what you just said um, applies perfectly to that sort of genre, if you will, as well, which is even if you're writing something, I think the moment you place it in a fictional framework, which is to say you place it into a story, um, it becomes something else because a story has its own engine, right? Has its own kind of destination that you're not always fully in charge of. So thank you for that. And I'll, <laughs> I'll keep that explanation for <laughs> the next time. Have you written something autobiographical or do you have plans to? I, I, I've been writing something, you know, that my pandemic project was yeah. um, to revisit my parents. Um, I have uh, uh, the, the diaries that my mother wrote and the letters that my father wrote to my mother during World War II. And, uh, and they're very, they're discontinuous. I mean, the, the, we have a set of letters from like 1944 to 1946, and we have diaries from like 1980 to 2010. So very different um, source materials. Uh, but I, I wanted to go back to them to, to kind of trace uh, their relationship to writing my mother's kind of writing of short stories and my father's kind of more um, uh, psychological wrote uh, books on psychology. Um, and then my relationship to writing. And so it would be three, there are three chapters. And so it is autobiographical and, and but the hardest chapter is the third chapter, the one on me, because I feel like I've captured my mother. I've captured my father. I could be, you know, totally mistaken in this, of course, but in, in my mind I have, but me, I'm the, I'm the harder one to pin down because, you know, it's, it's tough to get the tone right, um, with that. So I'm still kind of struggling with that third chapter though. Sounds like an exciting project. And, um, I'm wondering too, um, do you have like, and maybe this is too big a question, but it's something that just occurred to me. Do you have like an artistic ambition? Is there something that you want to achieve as you write these books? Or are you just kind of following your muse wherever she takes you? Ah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I think that's changed. You know, when I was younger, I had, you know, of course, the ambition to completely transform, you know, fiction, you know, just radically um, uh, change the way we think about fiction. And I didn't do that. <laughs> but uh, There's still time, my friend. There's still time. <laughs> I have more modest ambitions. But 
Um, I mean, each project, I think, in and of itself has its own ambition, you know, and whether it fits into a larger ambition is hard to say. Um, uh, you know, I, with this, with this trilogy, I did, I wanted to capture something about, um, the relationship between a family and the larger order, you know, to, to really, um, uh, understand, uh, how, how the dimensions, the, the, the interactions within a family mirror or don't mirror what's going on in, in society at large. Um, so that was the ambition. Um, did I achieve it? Hard to know, but um, it's uh, but that was kind of the, the ambition for that project for those three novels, um, and and as well to try to kind of um, you know here's the thing you know it's it's uh, you write a book about baseball you know like um, uh, the, um, if you if you build it then they'll come you know the the great novel and it turned into a movie about baseball people have no you know you write a novel about baseball people are like yeah sure you of course of course you write a novel people love baseball people love novels put them together it's great it's it's magic yeah novel and foreign policy no uh no 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 (laughs) you've gone too far (laughs) mister (laughs) so that was another ambition to say like well why isn't foreign policy just like any other human pursuit why is it considered you know beyond the pale when it comes to fiction so that was another kind of ambition if you will of this project um for larger I mean, I mean, I am kind of interested in poking at this, these questions about uh, the role of, of political fiction. Um, you know, how, how do you bring politics into fiction in ways that are um, that open up rather than close down? I think that's the, you know, the, the main problem people have with political fiction is that it, it doesn't um, challenge us. It, it, it basically you know, just lectures at us. And we don't want to be lectured at, unless we have, we're listening to a lecture. That's okay. But we do not with our novels, we're generally not it's so interested in lectures. So how do we, how do we write fiction that is political in, in important ways that, that are opening us up to, to uh, inquiry, to questions, to doubts, to reflection, et cetera. That, that's kind of a, an overall ambition, if you will. How does your life as a playwright fit into this artistic project? And I've had the great pleasure of seeing some of your plays and have loved them. And I know that you have a play that will be debuting soon, if I'm not mistaken. So I'd love for you to talk about that, but also how like your life as a playwright fits into your life as a, as a, as a writer as well as a novelist, I suppose I should say. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know about you, but I rarely see um, people reading my books. <laughs> um, you know, like on the subway, well, no one's on the subway these days, but anyway, it's rare that you see people reacting in real time to what you're writing. Yeah. Okay. They're carrying your book, but they're not like reading it and like chuckling and you know what page they're on. I mean, that doesn't happen. It's all private, you know? So you basically, you write in a black box and they read in a black box. And sometimes you have the the joy of having a connection between these two black boxes, but otherwise it's a, you know, it's a separate affair. Um, 
theater is something entirely different because you you get even if you're not performing and I, I do my own performing. But even if you're not performing as a playwright, you can sit in the audience and you immediately see how people are reacting to your words, um, as well as the joy of seeing your words come to life uh, embodied by people. Um, and that's an, an extraordinary thrill, you know, and then to do it yourself, to be on stage and to be aware from moment to moment of how people are reacting to what you are saying, because you have to be aware of that because you are, you're constantly, and this is also what's different, you know, with fiction, someone's reading your book, they stop on page 12, they put it away. They come back a week later, 12 to 14, they put it away, 16 to 20. You know, they read it in different parts. Maybe someone reads the whole thing once, but people get distracted, they look up, they tie their shoes, they have dinner. I mean, they, they, there's that doesn't happen with theater. You either hold their attention for the entire 60, 70, 90 minutes, or you are dead in the water. You have to hold their attention. So as an actor on stage, you are constantly aware of what people, what their reactions are, if they're with you or not. Um, and there are different tactics and ways of engaging audiences to ensure they're with you. But it's just a, an extraordinary feeling that's very different from uh, from the act of, of writing on paper and publishing. So that's, that's one. The, the other is that um, you can really explore voice in a way that is so different on stage, you know, and, you know, I, I will read my stuff out loud, you know, see if I got it right. But it's so different from being on stage where you, you have to inhabit that character, you know, in, in, and because if you don't, the audience is like, <laughs> your accent stinks, your posture stinks, you're not convincing, you know, all of that. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's really a, a check on authenticity that um, that's that puts you on a high uh, a high wire in a way that you're not quite on the high wire when you're when you're writing fiction. I mean, don't don't get me wrong; it is a challenge to get the voice right when in fiction, but you're not doing it in front of a live audience. Um, so that, that that's those are a couple of ways in which the the. The art of performance is 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 different, and the writing is different when you know thinking about how it's going to be performed, and thrilling in a way. Of course, it can also be absolutely uh, terrifying, absolutely terrifying in a way that writing fiction is is not quite as terrifying. I mean, your book comes out, can't change those sentences anymore. Yeah. That's terrifying, yeah. but. But it's it's a different kind of terrifying to be up in front of people and you're like, um, uh, I got that line. I mean, uh, damn. <laughs> sure. Uh, so we have four minutes left. So much more territory I wish we could, we could cover. Um, but let's do this. We have a couple more questions, so I think we'll take them quickly. Oh, yes. And do you have anything to say about your play that's any quick words about Sure. So it's called Clown Time, and it's about a time in the in the future when um, social success is measured by only one thing, and that's not uh, money, and it's not power, and it's not sex appeal. It's your sense of humor. And if you don't have a sense of humor, you are at the very bottom of the social ladder. 
And the main character is born without any sense of humor at all. That's me. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, uh, and it's about his, <laughs> his improbable rise uh, through society uh, with this particular handicap. Um, we're going to do it here in D.C. In, in front of live masked vaccinated audiences in the middle of July. And then we're actually going to um, take it to Edinburgh virtually. Uh, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival will uh, film it and then uh have it available for pay for pay pay per view. Pay a little bit, basically. It's not going to be very expensive. Um, let's see. Okay, quick question from the audience: um, How do you do? You have writer's block, and if you do, how do you overcome it? Yeah, um, uh, I, I don't tend to have much writer's block. I mean, I, there are times when I I get stuck at a particular novel and I put it down for twenty years <laughs> and then I okay. pick it up again. Um, and uh, surprise, I'm unblocked. I, I don't even remember. I don't remember writing the first part. I don't remember why I couldn't continue writing it. Twenty years, it's wonderful. Amnesia. It's a great. Okay, great <laughs> bit of advice there. <laughs> But but otherwise, other than those cases, I, I, don't, I don't. How about you? Do you do you encounter? No, I don't. You know, um, the thing I've just adopted this practice of writing a specific to a specific kind of word count every night. So I, I try to write like five hundred to a thousand words every night, regardless of what's going on in my life. And that for me has been in, incredibly freeing because um, I just know I have to produce those words. So they have to make sense. Maybe not. But you know, I think the act of constantly writing for me has been has been incredibly helpful. And so, and yeah, to your point, sometimes like a, a particular project, I'm not quite sure how to bring it to a conclusion. So I'll move to something else. And by the time I return to the other thing, there's something there. Um, so one final question for me before we end, but which this has been a really incredible conversation and thank you for being so generous with your, your answers and everything else. Um, my last question is a big one. So if you can't answer it, that's fine, but I can't help but ask you anyway, John, can art save the world? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, as I said, you know, Theodore Sturgeon said 90% of everything is crap. So, you know, <laughs> it's easy to say that, um, you know, 90% of everything that we do is is flawed in some profound way, including the art we create. But, and, and you know, we have plenty of examples of people who are artists, you know, even if they weren't very good artists like Hitler, um, who did pretty bad jobs when they were uh, in leadership positions. So, I, I, and and there's also you know really bad, terrible fascist art and you know racist art and you know so there's lots of bad art out there. Um, and I would hate to have that be kind of you know the 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 ruling aesthetic in the world. On the other hand. Um, I, I believe kind of in in the importance of uh, uh, things in creative tension with one another. And I think politicians, just as politicians, are not going to save us. Economists, as just economists, are not going to save us. Sculptors, probably, just as sculptors, are not going to save us. But art in conjunction with these other things, that will save us. Because I think there, there, there has to be an artistic sensibility that inhabits our approaches to climate, to um, to uh, social relations, even to infrastructure. I mean, even these things which are considered heavy bridge-like 
tunnel-like things. I mean, artists are ne- are ne- needed in that as well. Um, I mean, look at the the Roman aqueducts that have survived to this day, which are basically works of art. Um, so yeah, I think I think art can save us, but it can't do so single-handedly. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you for that wonderful response. And again, thank you for the book and for your generous responses. And to all of you who are watching this, thank you for the great questions. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with John Pfeffer, who again is the author of a great novel, the conclusion of a trilogy called Songlands. Thank you so much. That was fabulous. And thank you all for those questions. And thank you for Haymarket for putting this together. Of course. Shout out to Haymarket as well. (laughs) And the Institute for Policy Studies for... Can't forget IPS. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.